This is From the Envelope of Suicides, a study of the will to die and the will to live. Episode 5, City Judge Flays Gutter Snipes from Out of Town for Misdeeds, in which our narrator follows a thread of racism, arson, and misogyny in wartime New Britain. I've been thinking a lot lately about justice and how it can get twisted. I keep thinking about how easy it seems to be for us to see some people as more worthy of justice than others. And once we do that, how quickly then justice can become just another tool for oppression. And I keep coming back to this one particular thread of stories that unwinds from my grandfather's envelope of suicides. In a clipping my grandfather saved on July 29, 1942, under the headline, City Resident, Mother of Two Children, Mangled in Death Leap, we see that Mrs. Rose Pastrito, mother of two children ages six and seven, committed suicide by throwing herself in front of a New Haven Railroad passenger train. Mrs. Pastrito's car was found a short distance from the South Street Bridge. That was only four and a half blocks from her house but she drove that short span instead of walked. She'd made up her mind. The last piece of her resolve now slid into place, and she couldn't risk being late. She couldn't miss that morning northbound train. She left her children and drove off before they'd know she was gone. She drove to that bridge at the southeast edge of town, parked, and scrambled down the slope of brush, rocks, and loose dirt down to the railroad tracks. She was early, and she'd have to wait. The morning fog had burned off, the sky was clear, and it was already 75 degrees. The track curves out from behind a bend of the railroad ditch as it approaches the South Street overpass. She'd hear the engine coming before she'd see it come around that bend. Engineer Charles Johnson reported that he saw Mrs. Pastrito walking along the tracks, She stepped onto the tracks and faced the shrill cry of steam from the engine. She moved off the tracks again as the train approached, and then she hurled herself in front of the locomotive, he said. Rose's story is a complex tragedy that left her family bereft and confused, and that painfully echoed another recent suicide by train, in which the dying man was pulled out from under the cowcatcher in front of the railroad arcade in the center of town. The New Britain Herald called it a spectacular death. As a noontime crowd gathered around, Rose's brother-in-law, who was a police surgeon, he was the one who held that dying man's shoulders and head. And the man said to him, I suppose you must think I'm crazy. Rose's brother-in-law tried to comfort him, and he gave him a lethal dose of morphine to set him free from suffering. He had to carry the weight of what he'd witnessed with him, and now his sister-in-law had just killed herself in the same way. It's a devastating story, and I've spent a lot of time just trying to imagine how this man, by all accounts a kind and considerate person who tried to help Rose work through her issues, how he made sense of all of it. I became fascinated by Rose Pastrito, but I was left as devoid of answers as her grieving family was. I looked for any new angle I could find that might provide some insight, and I went into the archives of the New Britain Public Library to see the full issue of the paper that her clipping had run in, as if that extra context might tell me something. As I reread her front-page story, though, My attention drifted two columns over, where the paper said this. City judge flays gutter snipes from out of town for misdeeds. 90 to 93% of the more serious crimes in New Britain are committed by people from out of state, many of whom are gutter snipes who criticize and fleece the city and then leave, said Judge Henry J. Gwazda at a luncheon meeting of Kiwanians today at the Hotel Burrett. 
New Britain faces a real problem in the influx of war workers to this vicinity, according to the judge. Sex crimes in particular are on the upswing, he said, and a recent survey shows that the loss of manpower from venereal diseases exceeds the corresponding loss in the last war. Another civic menace is the, quote, Negro situation on Hartford Avenue, he claimed, citing the recent stabbing as an example. That pure little shot of race-baiting and scapegoating served up to a room full of respectable men speaks to a vile streak in New Britain. I researched the judge's claims, and you won't be surprised to learn that they're mostly bullshit. Rarely is something that cartoonishly inflammatory true. The line about 90 to 93% of the more serious crimes in New Britain being committed by persons from out of state, that's a pure fiction. And so was calling out the influx of people coming to New Britain to fill the labor shortage and blaming them for a spike in sex crimes and venereal disease. And the recent stabbing that he cites as evidence for the civic menace of the, quote, Negro situation on Hartford Avenue, a street that itself had become a dog whistle for immorality, ethnic intermingling, and low-class drama, that stabbing didn't really happen as he said it did. There'd been two recent fights involving a knife that he might have been referencing, but one of them, the culmination of a stupid argument about a hat, occurred in a home several blocks away from Hartford Avenue, where both participants lived. And the other fight, the other fight was in the Hollywood restaurant on Church Street, also several blocks away, and the guy who pulled a knife in that fight was white, and that white guy, he slashed another white guy's face. In the latter case, by the way, the presiding judge was the same Judge Henry J. Guazda, and after the prosecutor presented the state's case as, quote, another case of out-of-towners, the judge took the opportunity to grandstand a little and pronounced, We will stop this one way or another, so there will be spilling of blood on battlefields only, which the Herald reporter on the police court beat was all too pleased to put in print. That was the climate of the time. It was 1942, and everything was changing fast and under stress. The factories of this industrial city had converted to producing parts and products for the war effort, and they were running at maximum capacity around the clock. The repetitive stress broke many people's bodies and shot their nerves. Production had to drastically increase just as thousands of local men who'd worked in those factories had been called up for the draft, leaving their families behind, and women were grudgingly allowed to take their place. But still, there weren't enough workers to maintain the new levels of production, so war workers started coming from out of state to fill the gap. They had nowhere to live, so the federal government set up barracks for the single men and cheap housing developments for the families to use, all with the understanding that they'd all be torn down at the end of the war, and all those war workers and their families would go back to from wherever they came. Before the war, there had only been about 500 black people in New Britain. But within just the seven anxious months since America had joined the war, hundreds more black people had come to town to help fill the labor gap. Meanwhile, more and more of what were seen as the native sons of New Britain were being shipped overseas to maybe die. German bombers might drop incendiary bombs on the city at any time, so any night now all the people of New Britain might burn up in their sleep. It was a long summer, and there was a lot of fear to exploit. Henry J. Guazda was a man who seized his opportunities. The son of an immigrant who worked in a knife factory, he'd graduated from Wesleyan and the Hartford College of Law. He became one of the youngest judges ever in New Britain, and in 1942, when he was still just 31, he was already the most prominent Polish-American in town. Poles made up at least a fourth of the population, but the establishment had always seen the Poles in their midst as only semi-civilized, as unsanitary and unassimilated hordes packed together in the northern part of the city around Broad Street. A survey of local newspapers conducted by Stan Dubkowski of the New Britain Office of the Federal Writers Project in 1940 shows that ever since Poles started coming to New Britain in the 1890s to take good factory jobs, they'd been portrayed in the civic discourse as rowdy drunks who get in fights at every wedding, impulsive people, religious schismatics and anarchists, men who drink in packs and get in big fights. 
Scammers who, when they're being tried in police court, claim they don't know English, so the court has to hire their cousin or their friend to translate for them, which is a pretty nice payday they can split in the tavern later, get drunk, and start a fight. People whose names you can't pronounce or spell, which makes advertising to them difficult. People who smash plates at weddings. People who steal crates of bottles from the bottling plant and sell them. People who show up in City Hall and other government offices screaming a blue streak that no one understands. People packed into the tenements north of Stanley Works who kill each other for no reason or steal worthless things. Undisciplined wastrels always scheming for the next drink. And people whose lives are cheap. As the most prominent poll in New Britain, Judge Gwazda had worked for years to show the white establishment that the local Polish community had matured and become a true political force, that the Poles were ready for more power, and that they deserved it. He wasn't the only one, of course. As the leaders of the Polish churches, the publisher of the Polish paper, and the heads of Polish business associations all worked to assure the mainstream that Poles were respectable people. Gwazda's prominent position on the bench, however, gave him access that others lacked, and he used the platforms that were available to him to crusade as a Polish-American for moral rectitude. And now, in 1942, he was running for mayor, so he gave a series of speeches that summer in which he spoke out against the general rise of social problems that had come to New Britain since the start of the war, and in these speeches, Judge Gwazda, as a dedicated public servant and patriotic American of Polish descent, was forced to call everyone's attention to the fact that the cause of everything bad in New Britain was the influx of outsiders who've come here to do war work. He accused war workers of, quote, congregating on the streets and annoying women. He said that war workers were the market for the new affliction of squeaky joints, or, as they were commonly known, squeakies, which were tobacco shops with secret back rooms where war workers could indulge in card games and liquor. The war workers had brought with them moral lassitude, pornography, and poor hygiene, and they were undermining the social fabric of New Britain. The purest expression of this campaign of his that I've seen has to be that speech he delivered before the regular meeting of the Kiwanis Club in the banquet hall at the Hotel Burrett, on July 29, 1942. Judge Gwazda stood at the lectern before 70 businessmen and professional men who were flush with profits from the war, but anxious nonetheless. They were worried about the progress of the war and how fast things were changing at home. The labor unions were agitating, and it seemed like there were strikes every week. They were shocked to see women and black people now working in their factories. The assembled Kiwanians ate their plates of beef as they listened to Judge Gwazda appeal to the Christian values they all shared, in sharp contrast to the intermixed menace of sex crimes, syphilis, and what he ominously called the Negro situation. And having gauged the mood of the roomful of men of capital who were disgusted by the people who labored for them, he called their war workers, their own workers who worked the worst shifts and did the lowest jobs for them so that they might profit, he called them gutter snipes. And he pointed out how, all of a sudden, black men were walking around New Britain with all kinds of money in their pockets. They were eating in restaurants, they were taking taxis, they were gambling, they were buying new suits, and they were trying to get with white women. They were gutter snipes always running around together, and finally now, something had to be done. That point about white women was a crucial one. America was strong and could tolerate much, but the men of New Britain who held the community's trust to ensure some basic social morality had to draw the line somewhere, and they drew it at miscegenation. To the white men of the establishment, the sexual intermingling of the races was a simultaneous threat to the supremacy of whiteness and their control of the sexuality of white women. It threatened everything to them. And so the color line of intimacy had to be fiercely policed. Let me give you an example. 
in the same day's paper in which I read how Lillian Cavanaugh, a 25-year-old woman who'd been married for just six weeks, drank disinfectant. I flipped the page, and my eye caught on this. White woman admits being Negro's pal. Miss Jean Smith, 32, of 173 East Main Street, white, specializes in associating with colored persons, Sergeant Thomas J. Feeney told Judge Harold N. Williams in police court this morning, and eight other members of the police force testified they have seen her in company with different colored men in the past year. She was presented in court on charges of night walking and lewdness by prosecuting attorney William A. Keefe, and with her was also presented Roland Colbert, 24 of 302 Elm Street, colored, charged with breach of the peace and lewdness. They denied guilt, and their cases were postponed until April 20. In the meantime, they were to be given physical examinations. Miss Smith admitted associating with colored men, saying, They like my company and like to dance and talk with me, and I get along well with them. She admitted being intimate with men and visited restaurants and other places where colored people gather socially. The police testified they have observed colored men getting in and out of her car during early morning hours and seen her sitting in restaurants with colored men. Sergeant Feeney said he saw her go away by train for New York in company with a colored man who bought the railroad tickets. In the course of testifying, Miss Smith said she would marry Colbert if he would have her. But probably after all this coming out, he won't have me. Colbert asked for leniency, claiming he has never been in trouble and did not know what he was getting into. He said he became friendly with Miss Smith through her presence in restaurants where he had friends and because of their mutual enjoyment in dancing. Miss Smith was formerly a telephone operator in a local factory office. They accused her of prostitution because she dated black men and liked to dance with them. They locked her in a tiny holding cell in the police station overnight, and the next day they marched her down to the police court on the second floor. They locked her in a wire cage in the back of the room, and they made her stand there in her shame under the august and terrifying gaze of the law. The judge, a man whose mortal failings were covered beneath the awesome and impartial power of his black robe, this man who has been transformed beyond a man into a disinterested vessel of justice, he scrutinized her. And the most telling thing to me is that they made her stand there in her shame and wait as nine policemen, nine, who'd all taken time from their morning shifts to do this, filed into court to swear each man in turn upon a Bible, his disgust at that shameless woman right to her face, where she'd have to take it. They took this woman who'd asserted her own once too much, and they crushed her beneath their justice. It took nine cops to make sure she'd be punished enough. Oppression is a heavy weight in the atmosphere, a weight that some must constantly bear, an exhausting weight that drains the mind and, at any time, might suddenly coalesce and press down on you to push you to your knees. On Monday, February 28, 1944, a day that had been smothered in cold fog all day until the fog turned to rain, the Herald reports, while despondent this afternoon, Mrs. Sophie Truskovsky, 33, of 61 Main Street, slashed her wrist and took an overdose of sleeping pills, policemen William J. O'Day and Stephen Coffey reported. She was taken to New Britain General Hospital, where it was said her condition was not critical. Police responded when Dr. Charles J. Greenstein notified Death Sergeant John J. King of the removal of Mrs. Truskovsky to the hospital on his orders. She was employed as a housekeeper at the rooming house at 61 Main Street. She took the sleeping tablets so she could die quietly in her sleep. 
and as she waited, she grew more anxious, and she cut her wrist to speed it up. She was separated from her husband. She was a Polish woman living on her own outside the Polish neighborhoods. She'd been sexually harassed where she lived and where she worked, and she knew she was about to be punished for what she'd done. Someone had saved her this time, but they'd saved her for what? The cops kept coming around, and it only took a few more weeks of misery before they picked her up. On Thursday, March 23rd, the Herald said, Woman confesses firebug charge. Police say she admitted setting Main Street block blaze. Pleading guilty to a complaint of arson and confessing she set curtains of fire at the block of 61 Main Street on February 10 because she was angry at her employer, Mrs. Sophie Truskowski of 61 Main Street was held for Superior Court in bail of $5,000 by Judge John F. Downs in police court today. She was arraigned by Prosecutor William A. Keefe, who called only one witness to the stand, Policeman Delbert Veely, who testified Mrs. Truskowski signed a confession last night. The signed confession was presented to the court, and after Judge Downs read it, he found probable cause for binding her over. Persistent investigation by Policeman Veely and State Policeman James A. Parrott, arson expert of the State Fire Marshal's office, led to her booking last night after she signed the confession. Policeman Veely and State Policeman Parrott started their investigation shortly after firemen were called to the block twice early February 10. In the first fire in hallway curtains, 34 occupants, including children, were aroused by the police and ordered to the street. Damage of $100 was done. The second blaze was in a mattress in a room on the same floor, with damage of $75. In her confession, Mrs. Truskowski said for a time she was employed as a domestic, receiving $20 a week and paying $10 for her room, and her employer made unwelcome advances. She said she had a guest about midnight, and when they heard a noise in the hall, they went out and there was a drunken man there. They took him upstairs, and her guest departed, she asserted adding, The reason why I had the drunk moved upstairs was that I did not want him to get burned, as I had intentions to set fire to the building that night. Explaining her room was on the first floor above the sidewalk, Mrs. Truskowski said that after her guests departed, I went to my room, got undressed, took my sleeping tablets, and waited half an hour. Then I went down to the end of the hall and lit a match. With this one match... I set fire to the shades on the four windows in the hallway on the first floor. I then threw the match into the toilet bowl. I went to my room and waited for a few minutes until I thought the fire got started. Then I came out of my room and saw the shades blazing. I called and rapped on Albert Demizio's door. He takes care of the building and occupies room four on the same floor. I got no answer. It must have been some time after midnight. I then ran downstairs to the street. I ran up Main Street towards the center, but didn't see anyone, so I ran towards Franklin Square and saw a policeman. I shouted to him that there was a fire in the building and started to wake up the other occupants. When the fire engines arrived, most everybody was downstairs. After they had extinguished the fire they gave everyone permission to go back to their rooms. I took two more sleeping tablets and went to sleep. I knew nothing about the second fire, which occurred in room 11, until I was waked by police. This is the first time I ever set any fire, and wouldn't have done it this time except I hated. And here, the Herald replaced the name of the bastard who'd harassed her with a blank. I don't know if they removed his name from her confession because he was just an alleged bastard and they saw no reason to thereby besmirch his presumably good name, or if it was because the bastard who'd harassed her was the owner of the building, and he owned two other buildings in the downtown core and an entire city block at Willow and North that housed nine apartments, a grocery, a tavern, and a church, because he was a rich and influential man who thus should not be named. The story continued. I am not sorry I set this fire, as far as is concerned. The confession concluded. 
After Judge Downs read the confession, Mrs. Truskovsky said she had nothing to say and she was returned to a cell. She'd stood in the wire cage in the back of the police court and she'd publicly named the man who'd harassed her when she was most vulnerable and who'd abused her trust. This was the one piece of justice she'd asserted for herself and it was erased. They wouldn't let her put the name of the man who'd harassed her in the public record. Well, I'll say it for her then. The owner of the building was named Morris Cohn. He thought he could do whatever he wanted to anyone he wanted because he owned several buildings. He owned buildings and he put his name on every one of them. Cohn's building, Cohn's block, Cohn's corner. A man whose name is over the front door of several buildings can do whatever he wants to whomever he wants. Sophie lit four of his curtains on fire, and each curtain that caught and rippled with flame was the cleansing of a stain, burning some of his power away. And when the flames rose, for a moment the weight of the air seemed to lift until she had to rouse the sleeping people and people started to scream. She'd caused at most $175 in damages and she'd roused everyone to get out, but the cops hounded her until she confessed and they called it first degree arson, which could get her 10 to 25 years of labor at the state prison. She'd tried to mess with the powerful man so she could expect One column over from the story of Sophie's confession, there was a story about how the Democratic Party primary for mayor would be held that same day, and how, in reply to local queries, the U.S. War Department and the U.S. Selective Service both announced that mayors were not exempt from the draft and could be forced to serve overseas. This was an unexpected decision, as state legislators and state judges were still exempted from the draft, and it was only relevant to the situation in New Britain because the front-runner to be mayor, former Judge Henry J. Gwazda, had just been inexplicably drafted. This was despite the fact that his wife was expecting their second baby and that he was eight years older than the standard age limit. In fact, if he were to be inducted, he would be by far the oldest inductee ever from the area. The recent expansion of the draft to include young farmers had yielded large numbers of new fighting men, and yet somehow, incredibly, still, Gwazda was drafted by order of the local draft board, whose chairman was former judge Elias Ringrose. Ringrose had been his colleague when Gwazda was on the bench, and now he'd done this to him? This was clearly a smackdown by the establishment. And politics is nasty, fine. But they hadn't just submarined him in the mayoral race. They might be sending him to Europe to die. When he became a city judge, Gwazda had already become the most prominent Polish politician New Britain had ever seen. That was enough to absorb. But now, at the age of just 34, he was running for mayor? He didn't know his place, and he hadn't waited his turn. What's more, there was no doubt he could get almost every adult in the heavily Polish 9th and 10th wards to vote, even the women. Then the Polacks would be in power. As voters went to the polls with the fresh news that Gwazda would have to fight overseas regardless of if he won, Gwazda issued a statement that he had a plan for running the city as mayor even while he was chasing the krauts across Europe. Gwazda also told his supporters that he'd fight his induction, and they couldn't let the bastards win. They can't keep us out. 
Turnout in the Polish wards in the primary was up to four times as much as in the other wards, and he got the Democratic nomination. Three weeks later in April, he stood in the general, and though he delivered the Polish vote, there were significant Democratic defections, especially among white voters, to the incumbent mayor, Republican George A. Quigley, who won his record eighth term by 1,931 votes. And just weeks after Gwazda lost for the Democratic side, he was forced to line up in a gymnasium in New Haven with hundreds of much younger men, strip naked, be manually examined, and then answer a series of invasive and degrading questions about his parents, his employment, his education, his medical history, his recurring dreams, his compulsive thoughts, and his sexual proclivities. And then he was shipped over to drive a tank through German fields and towns soaked with the blood and ashes of Polish men, women, and children. Let me tell you about two men who came to New Britain to do work for the war. The first, a black man named William Bryant, was born in 1911 in West Virginia. He was abandoned at a young age and adopted by a man in Browns Creek, a coal camp a few miles from the town of Welch, where the second, a black man named Willie Poole, grew up. Welch is the seat of McDowell County, the southernmost county in West Virginia, right in the heart of Appalachian coal country. There was nothing in Welch for a young black man but dangerous work in a coke yard. There was nothing in Brown's Creek for a young black man but dangerous work as a loader in a pick mine. The mining jobs dried up, and the black workers were the first to be cut. During the war, when the North was flush with safer jobs that paid good money and they were short of men to do those jobs, Willie Poole married a girl named Rosetta, who was originally from Nashville and had been living up in New Britain for a while. And soon after, William and his new girl Fanny joined them up there. Willie and William got work at New Britain Machine Company, which employed 5,000 people in shifts running around the clock seven days a week to make arms for the war. And Willie and William got identical houses a block apart from each other in a new housing development that was set up for war workers in an empty part of the city in the southeast corner of town. So, in 1944, four blocks from where Rose Pastrita once lived, now lived Rosetta Poole. Rosetta had gone down on a train to marry Willie Poole, and she brought him back on a train to do war work, right around the time the city opened the Rockland Housing Project. Willie and Rosetta were issued a small prefabricated house, three strides from another small prefab house on either side of them, right in the heart of a 10-acre development that was meant to house 150 families like theirs, for just as long as the city needed them. The Rockland Housing Project was just a grid of paved streets in a field that had no buildings yet, when, three years before, Rose Pastrito drove past that field on her short half-mile drive to the railroad underpass, where she parked, scrambled down the embankment, waited in the bushes for the train to round the bend, and then ran out in front of it to her death. Rosetta Poole lived three blocks from where Rose Pastrito died. Rosetta got pregnant, and Willie and William started running around town more and staying out all night. I mention all this because, just four days after Sophie Truskowski's public abasement and confession to arson was displayed on the front page, Rosetta Poole took upon herself a similar fate. On March 30, 1944, the New Britain Herald said, Set home a fire, woman confesses. Intended to burn self to death, distraught wife says. Because, she said, her husband was Always running around. With another man, Mrs. Rosetta Vaughn Roselle Poole, 22, Negress, set fire to her home at 66 Lowell Street early Monday 
intending to commit suicide, she told Judge John F. Downs in police court today. She was held for superior court in bail of $2,500 on a charge of arson. Mrs. Poole, who married Willie J. Poole in Welch, West Virginia, September 4, 1943, said she had the fire fixed so I could not get out. But on returning to her bedroom, she realized a girlfriend who was spending the night with her would also be burned, and she called the fire department. When Prosecutor Martin F. Stempion presented Mrs. Poole, a plea of not guilty was ordered by the court, and after testimony of policeman Delbert Veeley and Mrs. Poole, probable cause was found. Mrs. Poole, who told Judge Downs she is pregnant and became distraught over her husband and William Bryant of 37 Lowell Street in the Rockland Housing Project, always running around, added, I am sorry I did it. She then broke down and cried bitterly. Policeman Veeley testified that after the fire, which did damage of $500 to $600 to the home and in which $100 hidden in the divan was destroyed, Deputy Fire Chief William T. Shaw reported the fire of a suspicious origin and investigation was started. In the presence of State Policeman James A. Parrott, State Policewoman Dorothy Scoville, and himself last night, he said, Mrs. Poole signed a statement she set the fire. On Sunday afternoon, the Pools went to two movie shows at different theaters, and after a lunch in a restaurant, Mrs. Poole walked her husband to the factory where he works on the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift and subsequently was taken to a third theater by Bryant, Policeman Veeley testified. There she met two girlfriends and about 8 p.m., returned to the factory to see her husband, and was told by a foreman that Poole had left with the man who called for him and said he was wanted at home as Mrs. Poole was sick. Continuing his testimony, the policeman said Mrs. Poole declared in her statement that she was afraid to stay at home alone, and she invited one of the girlfriends to stay with her. They hired a taxicab and went to the home. Policeman Veeley said the statement of Mrs. Poole continued, When we arrived home, I lighted the gas stove to warm the house. She went to bed. I fixed my hot water bottle and put it in bed. While I was getting undressed, I thought about burning myself and the house. I'd been thinking about doing this since December, when Willie first started staying away. I went into the kitchen, got seven matches, and went into the living room. I struck the matches and held them to the curtains and to the divan. I tried to set the fire so I couldn't get out of the house. Then I got into bed. Before I struck the matches, I opened one window in the living room and one in the kitchen. I opened the storm windows, too. Right after I got into bed, I heard her turn over in the bed in the other bedroom, and I'd forgotten she was there until then. Then I ran and woke her and told her the house was on fire. We both ran out of the house. I ran to the telephone outside and called the fire department. Mrs. Poole told Judge Downs she has been a resident of this city for five years. She is a native of Nashville, Tennessee. While leaving the home to sound the alarm, Mrs. Poole fell on the steps and she was taken to New Britain General Hospital for treatment. She spent the rest of the night at a neighbor's home. Her official story was that the fire must have started spontaneously when everyone was away or asleep. And somehow, the fire had started in the living room, where there were no appliance motors that might spark spontaneously and catch a hypothetical gas leak. So the fire was under immediate investigation, of course, and it made much more sense that Rosetta, while fixing a hot water bottle for herself in the kitchen, feeling overwhelmed by everything, a feeling that resolved itself strangely into an uncanny sort of clarity, listened to the gas hiss from the range, while in a momentary reverie. She slowly scraped the red tip of a kitchen match across the stovetop to make bloom at the matchstick's end a quivering drop of yellow flame. And she set that quivering drop to one of the little holes on the iron ring that channels the gas that bursts now into a circle of blue flame. That ring of blue flames burned for just a few minutes in her mind, but that was enough to pull her in like a dream, and that was enough, after she got ready for bed, 
to guide her back into the kitchen. She got the kitchen matches out again, and then she stepped into the living room that was lit only by the glow of the street lamp filtered through the curtains. That's where I think she counted seven matches out. She held six in one hand like the fingers of a witch, and she struck the seventh match against the exposed back of the couch. And that slow shock released a seed of flame that flared up from the wood and settled in at the end of the matchstick stem. The flame breathed as it climbed toward her fingertips. As she brought the clustered match heads in her left hand down to the flame, a blaze leapt up among them and they burst into life. She shook the single flame in her right hand out and, as she drew her fiery left hand closer to the drapes, it cast upon them ripples of yellow light. She brought her hand down to a side hem of a drape and the fire leapt along its edge and spilled out across the folds of fabric through its weave. The cloth, hungry for itself, gave itself up and turned the wall into a single undulating flame. Her fingertips still burned and she could touch them to the fringe of a cushion on the couch. She could open the windows to let the flames breathe and when the flames leapt from the drapes to the cafe curtains, the curtains billowed on a breeze, and the fire upon them swelled and pulled like waves on a pond, I believe. that night, after Rosetta and Willie had gone to two movies at two different theaters within a block of the building Sophie had tried to burn down, after they'd gotten something to eat and she walked him to work for the night shift, Willie's friend William Bryant took her aside and convinced her to meet some girlfriends and see another movie, and he even walked her to the theater to make sure she went. When Rosetta left that third movie, and went to the New Britain machine factory a couple blocks away to check in on her husband because she kind of had a bad feeling about it all. The workers there, fully aware now of how she'd been deceived and how she'd been used as an excuse to leave work to do God knows what, said that Willie had left his shift with William. And Willie had said it was because William had come running in and said Rosetta was awfully sick. And so Willie had to go home and care for his dear Rosetta, his sweet pregnant wife Rosetta, who was awfully sick. She'd been used as an excuse for her own degradation. Rosetta, who'd been abandoned and shamed by her husband, who was always running around, going to squeakies and messing with women, set his house on fire and eased into the dream of a bed of flame. But the misery that was her lot was still her lot, and the pull of the world was still too strong, so she suddenly remembered her friend in the next room. While leaving the home to sound the alarm, the paper said, Mrs. Poole fell on the steps, and she was taken to the hospital for treatment. She was pregnant and distraught. What would become of her now? She spent the rest of the night at the next-door neighbor's, well within earshot of the firemen ripping up the prefab walls of her smoldering home. The cops hounded her for two days until she cracked. They forced her to sign a confession and repent. But when the prosecutor presented her before the august majesty of the court, the white man in the black robe looked down at her as she stood locked in a wire cage. She stood under the weight of his gaze, and her repentance was refused. The government, in its benevolence, had given her the use of a temporary home, and she'd tried to burn it down, this ungrateful gutter snipe from out of state. The judge rejected her guilty plea so that she could have no hope for mercy. She was remanded to superior court to be crushed. 
Judge Henry J. Guazda's ambitions had been too much too soon, so the white establishment had him drafted and sent him to the front. But the funny thing is, he came back home, and he came back as a hero who'd helped win the war. After his discharge in December 1945, he ran again for mayor. And according to the New Britain Herald, Guazda, who returned from service only a few weeks before the election was held, defeated Mayor George A. Quigley, who was seeking his ninth term, by a plurality of 2,678 votes in what was one of the bitterest campaigns to be held here. Guazda became the 22nd man to serve as mayor of New Britain. The mayors of New Britain had mostly been men of English stock, men from the industrial establishment representing prominent hardware firms, practical men with massive mustaches until the turn of the century and smooth-faced men took over. The mayors of New Britain were English, until an Irishman got in, and then an Italian, and now Gwazda had broken through. The Polish community was finally represented in the core of city government, all thanks to the dedication and perseverance of this man, who served as mayor for two consecutive terms. He was the first Polish mayor in Connecticut. City jobs were now filled with Poles, and services began to flow to the Polish wards like they deserved. He lifted his community up, and toward the end of his life, they called Henry Gwazda the Polish Godfather. When he died in 2000 at the age of 89, his obituary in the Hartford Current celebrated him as the quintessential politician who, according to his former campaign treasurer, quote, always tried to do the right thing. What exactly the right thing is, however, oh, that can be a tricky thing. But we know that demonizing and oppressing some people so you can raise other people up, that isn't justice. That's just power. Think of Rosetta Vaughn Roselle Poole, that black woman from Jim Crow, Tennessee, who'd moved up to Connecticut to have a better life. Think of how she fell into such a deep despair that she tried to end her life and how she was met with no compassion, no understanding, or any sense at all that the community cared. She was brought to the police station, interrogated, and put in a holding cell. She was left there alone in her misery in that tiny cell overnight. Then she was marched down to the police court, where she was locked in a wire cage in the back corner of the room. A man in a suit pointed at her as he spoke to the man at the raised desk in a black robe. The man in the black robe looked coolly at her and pronounced her fate. Rosetta had repented and her repentance was refused. She'd be sent in chains to the state prison and Sophie Truskowski would be there too. Rosetta would grow full and heavy from the baby and when the time came, they'd chain her to a birthing bed. She'd tear her body to make this baby. They'd take the baby from her, and then they'd take her back to serve her years of labor for the state. I believe Rosetta lived under the weight of oppression all of her life. She learned that other people could control her life when they wanted, and it was natural from that for her to learn a despair that permeates everything, a despair that finally coalesces as the will to die. She finally released herself, she finally let herself give in, and she set the world on fire around her. And then, at the last moment, she found her will to live again, she seized control of her life again, she woke her friend, and they ran from the flames and she was crushed by justice for that and put in a prison to be forgotten. But we all know her some now. We all see her in her humanity, and in this, I believe, is the root of an altogether other sort of justice, a sense of justice that fights for each person's dignity and ability to pursue their potential. This sort of justice is the strongest weapon we have against despair.
This is From the Envelope of Suicides by Ben Morad. Sound and music by Wilson Vidiner and Courtney Sheedy. Guest voice by Stephanie Barr. This has been made possible by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. If you are considering suicide, please stop for a moment and look at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Think about it. At that site, you can find resources and how to contact someone who can help you talk things out. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org, or you can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. For more about this project, including notes on this episode, please visit envelopeofsuicides.com and follow at Ben Morad. I'm Stephanie Barr. Thank you.